Turn to Exodus 7. Exodus 7, verse 14, that'll be our starting point. We won't go through as many scriptures as we did this morning, but we probably never will. So uh, you can rest assured we had a specific purpose this morning in going through the entire New Testament to demonstrate biblical salvation. Now, in Sunday school classes around the world for generations, uh, there's been really this tremendous tool of discipleship and learning It's been utilized by faithful teachers of our precious children. In fact, it's a tool that's so mighty, it literally has the power to embed the truth of God into the minds and hearts of children. This tool of discipleship is a beacon of hope and light to all of our little ones, commonly known as the crayon. It is the greatest tool uh, since 1903, since it first came out in the United States. And using this great tool, children for generations have created and colored pictures of the most famous Bible stories. And if I were guessing, the ten plagues of Egypt would have to be some of the greatest favorites of children to color. I mean, you get a river of blood with all the kids fighting over the red crayons. You get the plague of frogs and all the kids fighting for the green crayons. You have gnats and flies and dying livestock with little X's where their eyes used to be. You have the boils or skin ulcers. Nobody, you know, Kids don't ever know what to color those. Hail and thunder and lightning, all the kids fighting for the yellow crayons. You have the locusts, and then you have the plague of darkness and all the kids destroying the black crayons and one poor kid who got stuck with the brown one who had to have a subpar coloring page because of that. But then it gets a little uncomfortable because you have the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. And the teachers don't always know what to tell the students about this. And while the ten plagues of Egypt have provided some of our best Sunday school coloring experiences, sometimes they begin to make the Sunday school teacher squirm a little bit because God is no longer fitting into the fuzzy, touchy-feely little box that we're comfortable having him in. They find that God is big, God is mighty, God is inexplicable, And if I could put it this way, God is dangerous. God is dangerous. So we come once again to Israel on the plains of Moab, across the Jordan River. We're being reminded by Moses of what happened to many of them when they were small children and before some of them were born. By now, the entire first adult generation of Israel has died in the wilderness because of their disobedience. The exodus happened 40 years earlier when Moses is is reminding them of this story. Moses is now recounting the story as it will be written in the Pentateuch. And all the hearers either will have not been born yet when this happened or they would have been children. They would have the, the memory of a child. And so Moses is teaching them here the nature of the God that they serve. He is teaching them about God. The God who has formed them into his chosen nation And we have to remember the overall context here, that Israel as a nation is being formed as God's chosen people, his chosen nation, as a conduit through which salvation is offered to all nations. We've seen this in the Abrahamic covenant when we were in Genesis. And so this is just a piece of the bigger redemptive picture. The exodus from Egypt of the Hebrew slaves is happening because God told Abraham hundreds of years earlier that this is precisely what would happen. Genesis fifteen fourteen. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And so in our text this evening, we'll be looking at Exodus 7, beginning of verse 14, and we'll go all the way through part of chapter 11. God is making certain declarations about himself. He, he's teaching about who he is. And we'll get to those declarations in a bit. But first, we want to just kind of do a flyover of the text to make sure we are reminded of the key details. Moses is called by God and assisted by his brother Aaron. He has appeared before Pharaoh. He's thrown down the gauntlet, or more precisely, he's thrown down Aaron's staff. It's turned into a snake. But Pharaoh called his magicians who replicated this using demonic powers. Aaron's snake ate the Egyptian snakes. And now we're set up for this great conflict, and it begins. In fact, the preamble is chapter 7, verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And we come to the first of ten plagues. Plague number one, chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take your hand, in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know, shall you know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish are going to die. The Nile is going to stink. The miracle would, in fact, extend itself to the water that's already been drawn out of the Nile, to the ponds in the area, to water that's already in vessels, in homes. All the water that's been taken out already would be turned. Moses and Aaron did the miracle. And again, verse 22, by their dark demonic magic, the magicians of Egypt replicate this miracle. Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he wouldn't listen. But this was a pretty big annoyance to the Egyptians. Look at verse 24 of chapter 7. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Then you have the second plague, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people. And ladies, how about this? And into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. So according to the word of the Lord, mass quantities of frogs begin to come up from the Nile River. And again, the magicians of Egypt replicated this miracle. But unlike the water turning to blood, this time Pharaoh was a little bit more desperate. Chapter 8, verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So God killed the frogs. Chapter 8, verse 15. But Pharaoh saw that there was, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Plague number three, very next verse, verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And the very dust of the earth becomes gnats everywhere. This time the magicians tried to replicate this miracle, but they failed. They couldn't do it. Now the magicians begin to give advice to Pharaoh. Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So we go on to a fourth plague. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people, and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So this time God adds a detail that Israel is chosen, they're set apart, and he's going to demonstrate this with great clarity. The flies will not be permitted, permitted to enter the land of Goshen where the Hebrews are. So Pharaoh tried to cut a deal. He tried to partially give in. He offered Moses that his people could sacrifice to God right where they were. Hey, that's fine. You, you take the day off and you can sacrifice. But Moses said, no, we've been instructed to go a three-day journey away. And so Pharaoh keeps on negotiating. Chapter 8, verse 28 so Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. And so Moses prays, and the flies are removed. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. It gets worse. 
Plague number five, chapter nine, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Again, the Lord makes a distinction. None of the all-important livestock of Israel will die, and that's their wealth. That's everything that they have. Verse 7, And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Well, now it gets personal. The sixth plague, very next verse, verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Now this is getting more serious. Verse 11, And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the magician, all the Egyptians. And so as before, the Lord hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Now it becomes even more serious. Plague number seven. Now God reminds Pharaoh of what he could have done. And listen to this warning. Chapter nine, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so because Pharaoh continued exalting himself against God's people, verse 17 God promised that the heaviest hail in the history of Egypt would fall the next day. And this is a massive hailstorm, verse 23 of chapter 9. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as never had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail knocked down all the crops in the field. They decimated the orchards of Egypt. But in Goshen, where Israel was, the skies were clear. You could go have a picnic on that day. But now there's a new development. Chapter 9, verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord. For there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. But once again, verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Plague number eight. As a preamble to the eighth plague, God's, God reminds Moses of the purpose of the plagues. And this really tells us what the plagues are here for. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, this is the purpose. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. And so, per God's instructions, Moses threatened Pharaoh with the land being overwhelmed by locusts filling the field and the houses before the plague happened. And now, Pharaoh's own people are pleading with him. Verse 7 of chapter 10, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? And so Pharaoh told Moses and Aaron, you can take the men of Israel, but the children and the flocks stay in Egypt. So here come the locusts. 
chapter 10, verse 14. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, though through all the land of Egypt. Momentarily, Pharaoh's resolve weakened. In verse 17, now therefore forgive my sin, please only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. God blows away the locust with the wind. But once again, verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people go. Plague number nine comes with no warning at all. There is no warning. There is no opportunity. Chapter 10, verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. No darkness in Goshen, only where the Egyptians were. I don't know how that would work exactly, but theoretically you should be able to feel your way through the darkness and stick your hand out into the light and vice versa. But there was a line somewhere. And for three days, the land was completely gridlocked. The text says that nobody went anywhere. Pharaoh called for Moses And said they could leave, but they had to leave their flocks behind. They had to leave their wealth behind. Moses said, no, we all go. Chapter 10, verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And now we get... To the most serious plague of all, God tells Moses that there's one more plague. And after this, not only will Pharaoh let Israel go, he'll drive them out completely. Chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, nor man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now we have to look over at chapter 12, verse 29. Chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And so Israel is leaving Egypt. Now, we should never think that it somehow took God ten tries to get Pharaoh to let Israel go. This was an exercise in educating Israel concerning their God, educating Egypt concerning Israel's God, and educating us concerning the God of Israel, who is our God. So now we've done a little fly over here. We could identify six declarations concerning their God, concerning Yahweh. Six declarations, and I'll get to those in just a moment. But I want to remind you that the term God in the ancient Near East was generic. We, we have been raised as monotheists, and rightly so to us. When we say God, we're thinking of the one true living God of the Bible, But the ancient Israelite who didn't have a Bible yet, God specified to Moses that he is Yahweh. That's the name by which he is to be called in comparison to the names of of the other false gods. And now the matter of how Yahweh stacks up with the other gods, this is what has to be settled. Because the point is is that Yahweh is demonstrating how he compares to the other gods. So we're going to refer to him in our outline by his covenant name, Yahweh. 
That's the whole point. He's not just God. He's proving that there is only one God. The reason that we simply use the generic for God to speak of the one true living God is because he's made his point so well. Right? Now, scholars aren't precisely certain how the covenant name of God is to be pronounced. Scribes in ancient manuscripts would continually change what they call the vowel markings or vowel pointings so that nobody could accurately pronounce the name of God, and that was to keep you safe uh, from, uh, from death, according to their tradition. And so they would avoid speaking the covenant name of God. So we don't know how to say it. But we don't have any such restriction on speaking the name of God, and the best scholarly guess is Yahweh, and this is often represented by four capital letters, Y-H-W-H, corresponding to the same four Hebrew consonants making up the covenant name. And so we'll honor that purpose this evening in our outline. So now we come to our first declaration. Yahweh alone is God. Yahweh alone is God. Now, when I preached at last year's Steadfast Conference, you may recall that as we looked at the purpose of the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, we saw that it was written to Israel to answer the question, how many gods are there? And the answer to that question, of course, is one. There is one true living God, and Israel now has spent the last four centuries in a land saturated with polytheists. There, there, were, no, there were no people who only believed in one God on the earth. Everybody believed in multiple gods. Now, it's long been put forward that in these ten plagues, God was symbolically defeating specific gods of Egypt, gods which would correspond to each plague. For example, Happy, H-A-P-I, or Y, the god of the Nile and the bringer of fertility, was defeated when God turned the river to blood. The frog-headed goddess Ket, Q-E-T, was defeated when frogs got out of hand in Egypt. And we certainly understand from Scripture that God most definitely was coming against the gods of Egypt. As God explained the tenth plague, he affirmed that through this plague he was conquering the false gods of Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 12, look at that with me for just a moment. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. When you see the Lord in all capitals, that's his covenant name. And so clearly that is the case. In fact, looking back on that final blow, Moses recorded that the Israelites left Egypt in full view of the Egyptians who literally were burying their firstborn of every family. And the Lord judged those gods of Egypt. Numbers 33, 3 and 4 says this. He's reminding them of the Exodus. They set out from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. And so we understand that, that God is defeating the gods of Egypt. Now, some scholars say that the correlation between the plagues and the gods of Egypt is coincidence. We would strongly contend that nothing that has to do with God is ever coincidence. And if you really believe in the sovereignty of God, you don't believe in coincidence. But that's another issue for another day. But we do have to look at a couple of facts. First of all, there's no complete consensus on precisely which gods are being defeated and how they related to the plagues. There's another fact we have to consider. When God is calling out a specific false god, there's no lack of clarity. He makes that abundantly clear. When Israel was beset by the worship of the major Canaanite deity Baal, God set up this, this massive challenge at Mount, at Mount Carmel where Elijah the prophet took on the priests of Baal. There was no lack of clarity. God said, I'm coming after the worship of the false god Baal. But there's not that sort of direct challenge here in Exodus to those specific gods of Egypt. Another fact we have to consider is that the, the pantheon of Egyptian gods developed from at least 1,500 years before the time of Moses and encompasses over 2,000 different deities. They're, they're complex. There's multiple versions and names of these gods. So I think rather than saying God was taking on 10 Egyptian gods, which they wouldn't even miss, really, 
I think there's a much bigger idea in play here. At the very beginning of this conflict, Pharaoh made a statement of defiance. Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so, that's true. He knew nothing of the Hebrews' God, which should compel him to release the Hebrews' God's people, to release his free slave labor force. Why should he? So, Yahweh introduces himself, and he introduces himself with ten plagues, showing that Yahweh is unparalleled and unmatched in all of the universe. Egypt associated itself closely with all its gods, and so to defeat Egypt is to defeat her gods, and to defeat her gods is to defeat Egypt. And the plagues do definitely seem to correlate to certain Egyptian gods. That doesn't really fulfill the purpose of the plagues for Israel. Yahweh defeating ten specific gods isn't going to make a daily life difference to the average Hebrew. What he is demonstrating is that none of these so-called gods have any power. It's almost as if he's saying, pick one, and I'll go against it. They're powerless, they're weak, they're helpless. They're, they're false deities, demonically inspired and represented by nothing more than carved images and, and drawings. And so Israel was to have confidence, not that Yahweh could beat his competition, but that Yahweh had no competition. That's what they were to be convinced of. And for the Egyptians, God is getting glory by dismantling everything that they know to be true. Everything they hold dear is giving them security. The plagues assaulted everything Egypt believed about creation, about order, about stability in the universe. And as a little side bonus, since Pharaoh was supposedly the man-god who maintained cosmic order ruling on behalf of the gods, these plagues showed that he was a fraud and showed that his gods are fraudulent as well. So Pharaoh, his people, and the Israelites will acquire detailed knowledge of the living God. It will be knowledge gained by direct observation and proof. This is not a theology class. This is stuff happening in the world to their very environment. And there's a clear choice. Yahweh alone is God, and those who submit to him will live under his blessing, and those who rebel against him will feel his rightful wrath. That's the choice. Moses will remind, by the way, the next generation of Israelites of this knowledge that Yahweh alone is God. On God's behalf, he will demand allegiance. To this second generation in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says, beginning in verse 32, For ask now the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? He's referring back to Mount Sinai. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Listen to this. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. That was the point. Yahweh alone is God. There's a second declaration concerning God, Israel's God. Not only is Yahweh alone God, but Yahweh is supreme. Yahweh is supreme. Pharaoh was supposed to be the God-man, representative of the gods themselves. He was supposed to be impervious to lesser gods. He was supreme. He was untouchable. In fact, the Pharaoh of Egypt had two titles and two roles. His first title, was, he was called Lord of the Two Lands. Lord of the Two Lands, meaning Upper and Lower Egypt. He made laws, he collected taxes, he defended Egypt from invasion, and in certain dynasties, he also owned all the land. So he literally had everything. But he was also called by the title, the high priest of every temple. The high priest of every temple, his role was to represent the gods on earth, to perform rituals, to build temples. 
He was supposed to be the human manifestation of the gods on earth. But Yahweh showed otherwise. I'll go through these quickly. You don't have to turn here. Exodus 4.21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. Exodus 7.3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 9.12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Exodus 10 verse 1. I have hardened his heart. Exodus 10 verse 20. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 10, verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 11, verse 10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 14, verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. Exodus 14, verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Exodus 14, 17, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. From chapter 4 to chapter 14, 10 times, one for every plague, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And the only purpose stated is that Yahweh would receive glory. And listen, there is never any wiggle room at all to even suggest that God was unjust in hardening Pharaoh's heart against God. In fact, I would say this. I would say that it is offensive and it's blasphemous to even ask the question, was God unjust in hardening Pharaoh's heart? Because the immediate response should be, who do you think you are to even ask that question? I don't recognize your right to ask that question. Neither does God. How easily Yahweh turned Pharaoh's heart wherever he wished. And no wonder Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Yahweh alone is God. Yahweh is supreme. He's sovereign. There's a third declaration concerning Israel's God. Yahweh is patient. He's patient. They would be wrong to think that God hardening Pharaoh's heart was merely fatalistic determinism, as if somehow Pharaoh in his innermost being really wished that God wouldn't harden his heart. In fact, look at all the patience and the forbearance that God showed to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had chance after chance after chance to submit to God. Look at all the times God offered him a way out of judgment. In fact, we could categorize this into five different ways God offered him a way out. Five different ways. First of all, the prayers of Moses. The prayers of Moses. Exodus 8, verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord. Exodus 8, verse 28, Pharaoh said, plead for me. Verse, chapter 9, verse 28, plead with the Lord. Exodus ten seventeen. now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God. And by the way, every time an unbeliever asks Moses to pray for him, what does he do? He prays for him. He pleads with the Lord. And so, I mean, I don't know how else you could get through this crisis if I had Moses praying for me. That's the ultimate opportunity. There's a second way God offered him a way out of judgment. The urging of his own magicians. The urging of his own magicians. They might not have been saved, but they weren't idiots. And first of all, Pharaoh saw that very quickly they couldn't replicate the miracles that Yahweh was doing. God allowed them in his sovereignty to, to, through trickery, imitate the first couple of miracles. But after that, they couldn't. And so there was a clear breaking away of you guys are left in my dust but second exodus eight nineteen, the magician said to pharaoh this is the finger of god chapter 10 verse 7 egypt is ruined and he wouldn't see it he had the prayers of moses the urging of his own magicians there's a third way god offered him out of judgment the experience of partial obedience he had an experience of partial obedience chapter 8 verse 8 i will let the people go Chapter 8, verse 25, he said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Chapter 8, verse 28, I will let you go sacrifice, only you must not go very far away. Chapter 10, verse 24, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you, only let your flock and your herds remain behind. So he had the, the experience of partial obedience. There's a fourth way out that God offered. He had the experience of partial remorse. He had the experience of partial remorse. 
Chapter 9, verse 27, this time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right. Chapter 10, verse 16, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. He experienced it. He had a softening moment. And the fifth way, the most obvious one that God offered, the repeated opportunities to repent. How many did he get? At least ten. Ten times over, God showed them his power and his might. But as with all who continue to reject the knowledge of God, just as Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Listen, when an unbeliever stands before God, having heard the gospel multiple times, and having rejected the gospel multiple times, having heard that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord and wants to forgive you of your sin and to, and to become the Lord of your life, having heard that heaven is offered, having heard that you can have your sins washed away, having heard that you can go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, God is vindicated when he judges them in that he is patient, he's long-suffering with the unrepentant, and when judgment comes, it will be righteous, it will be just. And we ought not to think that we would have multiple opportunities to repent. There does come, finally, a last opportunity. Because he's patient. Yahweh is patient. There's a fourth declaration concerning Israel's God. Yahweh is almighty. Yahweh is almighty. Nine times in the Old Testament, Yahweh is called God Almighty, El Shaddai. But God is so associated with his possession of all power, of all might, that 48 times in the Old Testament, he's just called the Almighty. That's a common term for God, the Almighty. And through the ten plagues, Yahweh set out to prove that he's not just a mighty God. He is the mighty God, the only mighty God. And he did this through the progressively intensified nature of the plagues. We already saw that he told Pharaoh, he said, I could have wiped you out by now. He's just turning up the heat slowly over these plagues. In fact, we can expand the 10 plagues to include the miracles done right before the plagues and the miracle done after the plagues. And we could categorize these by intensity. In fact, we could call these categories the four D's of the plague. Here's the first D. Category one, danger. Danger. In chapter seven, Aaron casts his staff down before Pharaoh and it becomes a snake. The magicians replicate it, but Aaron's snake eats Pharaoh's snakes. This is a warning of future devastation, but no actual harm has been done. A snake had a meal and that was about it. Then you get to plague number one, the Nile turning to blood. Now we have to take a moment here to consider something. And we have to take a little digression here. The plagues are clearly progressing in intensity. And yet the Nile turning to blood is the very first plague. It's, it's the lowest level one according to this order. But if the Nile had turned to actual biological blood, the effects would have been almost unimaginable and would have been deadly. The Nile in Egypt is 600 miles long. It's a river. If it was a river of biological blood, the sun would have turned it basically into sludge and into mud of biohazardous waste. There would be no drinkable water available by some accounts for, for several years. It would have taken a very long time for the Nile far to the south of Ethiopia. The Nile runs from the south to the north, unusually. It would have taken a long, long time to wash away all that coagulated blood. This would have brought mass disease since almost all Egyptians lived within three or four miles of the Nile. But we can't ignore the fact also that the normal Hebrew word for blood is used here regularly. It's used to describe what happened to the river. But neither can we ignore the fact that this is at the beginning of the plagues. This is the danger category where no real damage is done. And so that puts us in a little bit of a bind, a little bit of a quandary. For years, we've been generally presented with two choices. Either say, well, I take the Bible literally, and this is real blood, or 
I have to be liberal with those who explain away all the miracles of the Bible with natural phenomenon, that this was actually just red mud flowing down from the, from the, from the south and so forth. But some scholars propose a third choice, that this was a miraculous act of God which made the water temporarily toxic with some substance which turned it red like blood. Yes, it was absolutely miraculous because the water already drawn out of the Nile already turned. Uh, the ponds which were away from the Nile turned. So it can't be explained away by any natural phenomena at all. And this is actually a very reasonable choice. And I want to give you several reasons because this may be new information to you. First of all, to say that the river turned to blood was already a phrase that Egyptians were familiar with. They already knew about this. What did they mean by that? Ancient Egyptians' writings from before this time revealed a time in which the Nile became foul during an economic crisis. In fact, uh, the, the wild animals were said to have gone crazy. There were said to be bodies in the Nile, and it even changed colors. The, there were dead bodies of dead animals and dead people in the Nile during this crisis. And one source said, quote, Indeed, the river is blood, yet one drinks from it. And so to have the water chemically changed to where it's disgusting and, and stale and so forth, they were, it was said to be turned to blood. Here's a second reason. The Egyptians didn't describe the water in this particular instance as blood. Chapter 7, verse 24, they're seen digging for water all around the Nile, and they were not able to drink, quote, water from the Nile. There's a third reason. The plague was really pretty mild in its effects. Fish died because of the poisonous water. But this is something the Egyptians saw before. Their history shows this. And Pharaoh didn't even really seem panicked. He was pretty indifferent. Contrast that, with the, that indifference with the alarm when the frogs came. He was way more concerned about the frogs. And in fact, rather than panicking when the water turned to blood, as it were, Pharaoh's magicians simply recreated the miracle with their tricks, an act of defiance. But for me, most convincingly of all, this is not the only time in Scripture that blood is used symbolically. Jesus himself said in John 6 that if you want to follow him, you must drink his blood. Did he actually mean to drink his physical blood? No, he, he was being symbolic there. But there's one that you're maybe even more familiar with. At the coming judgment of God on the earth, the day of the Lord, Joel 2.31 says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to what? Blood. Now, there's a difference between not taking Scripture literally and understanding that symbols are used in the Bible to represent literal fact. I, I don't think we would say, and by the way, that is... That is said to be fulfilled in Revelation 6, 12. The full moon became like blood. We would never say that during that prophetic time, the moon is literally going to be turned into a mass of red blood cells. We wouldn't say that. It indicated color. Now, I kind of had to scratch my head at this because why didn't Moses just save us all a lot of trouble and say in the first plague, God turned the waters red? That, that would have been a lot easier well, because the description of the water as blood, first of all, was familiar to the Egyptians already. And it indicated that the water didn't just change color. It changed chemical composition, making it undrinkable, killing the fish. And in a certain sense, by the way, this is sort of the opposite of the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. It's going the other direction, that he controls all the elements and so the water was undrinkable. It was a, a token of disaster yet to come. You don't see a, a sense of panic at all in the sense of the, in the Egyptians. Yes, it's inconvenient. They're having to dig for their water. But no actual harm came to anyone. What would we call this in today's terms? We would say God was firing a warning shot over the bow. He was saying, I can do this and I can do worse. So category one is danger. Just a low level, little warning. Here's another D of these categories, discomfort. Category two, discomfort. Frogs are invading the land. They come into homes and into bedrooms and kitchens, even found in the ovens and the bowls. It's uncomfortable. It's disgusting. But no one got hurt. I can't imagine what it would be like to open my kitchen cabinet at home and have frogs come jumping out. It's, it's horrid. And then gnats invading the land. Again, it's disgusting. It's emotionally uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. You, you get them stuck at the back of your mouth and you're doing that. Ah, ah, 
thing all the time. Flies invading the land. You're saying, please give me the gnats back. They're disgusting. They're uncomfortable on a higher level. And still, no one got hurt. And Pharaoh would not relent. So it's ramping up. First, there's danger. Now there's discomfort. The third D, the third category, disaster. Disaster. The livestock of Egypt die. This is economic disaster. This is the world's first stock market crash, so to speak. Now God is destroying the wealth of Egypt. And he, just, he even said which specific animals he was going to take out the first time because we saw that there were still livestock alive, just specific ones that he had taken out. You have the boils, the skin ulcers on all the Egyptians. Now the attacks are coming against the actual bodies of the Egyptians themselves, causing pain and disfigurement. Boils came on man and beast. You have a hailstorm. It struck down all the crops and kept the workers inside, and the workers who stayed outside died. But even the ripe crop that's struck down by hail can be somewhat salvaged unless God sends locusts. Chapter 10, verse 5 says the locusts ate everything that was left over after the hail. And so now you, now you have people incapacitated by boils on their bodies. You have the agricultural wealth of Egypt decimated. This is disaster. And even the, the, the magician said, Egypt is ruined. God brings danger, discomfort, disaster, and still Pharaoh will not relent. Still he will not acknowledge that God is the Almighty. And so Yahweh brings the fourth category, death. He brings death. He brings the plague of darkness. Now the traditional interpretation of the plague of darkness is that God is defeating the sun god Ray or Ra of Egypt. And as we said before, there is some general truth to the fact that God was defeating all the gods of Egypt. But the text never explicitly says that. We're, we're kind of reading that in from an assumption viewpoint. Why would darkness, now the ninth plague, why would that be the second to worst plague? Well, the darkness was so severe, if you think about this, the Egyptians had no way to know that they hadn't gone blind. It was so severe, they didn't leave their homes. They didn't go anywhere. They had no objective means to see that it was light that was being blocked, not that it was their, their eyes that have gone out. It wasn't a momentary eclipse. There were three days of darkness so intense that it could be felt, chapter 10, verse 21. But there's very convincing archaeological evidence from ancient Egyptian Sources that demonstrate that Egyptians viewed blindness or darkness as a clear sign that they were being punished by a great deity and were about to die. That's what they thought. Darkness equals death. And so for three days, as far as they knew it, life as they knew was over. For three days, they couldn't move. They couldn't function. Their entire civilization would crumble very quickly, quite literally in a matter of days if it continued. And then, of course, you have the death of the firstborn. This wasn't just God demonstrating his might against Pharaoh. It was against all Egypt, from Pharaoh down to the slave girl at the handmill. You recall that Pharaoh had at one time ordered the, the killing of all the Hebrew boys. And this was God coming back to say, you will not do that to my people and come out unscathed. But even after this, after the plague of the firstborn, to take the plagues of death even further, to take that category even further. After the tenth plague, God had one more final blow to let Israel and Egypt know that he is the Almighty. He would destroy Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. And I'm going to show you next, next week that this was a massive army. We can look at the actual numbers. He'll destroy Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. The entire fighting force, his strength and his power is gone. And next time, by the way, I'll make the case from Scripture that Pharaoh lived to see this disaster. That's how God got glory over him. And so the, the plagues progressed from a snake eating other snakes to death on a cataclysmic level. This is a tremendous warning to the non-Christian. The non-Christian should be warned that God can suck the air from his lungs anytime he wants to. And by the way, the, the Christian ought to be warned, we ought to be warned that reckless pursuits of sin don't just go unnoticed by our Father. 
Hebrews chapter 12 says he disciplines those whom he loves. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that this this can go up to and including the discipline of death. That he will strike his own children. Yes, they'll go home to heaven. But he doesn't just say, oh, I didn't know this, what you did. Why is this so important? God shares glory with no sin and he shares glory with no sinner. Because Yahweh is almighty God. It's the fifth declaration we could see from Israel, concerning Israel's God. Yahweh is just. He's just. We've already established that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's supreme. He's sovereign. He has every right to do so. We don't even have the right to question whether he has the right to do so. And yet those who deny the clear doctrine of election create a category of human being which doesn't exist in Scripture a non-elect person who wishes they could be saved from their sins. That person doesn't exist in the Bible. This comes from the assumption that election is merely blind determinism with no human variable whatsoever, that somehow the lost perish because God is unjust. And thus, the doctrine of election is denied. But do the lost, are they truly without responsibility? Do they have no culpability at all? Well, we saw 10 times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This was clearly a work of God. But there are 10 other times in the same section from chapters 4 through 14 that say either that Pharaoh hardened his heart or more passively, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He allowed it to be hardened. And remember, as God ramped up the plagues, Pharaoh's responses got more and more rebellious. Let me just walk through them briefly. After the staff to snake miracle Pharaoh wasn't even budged. He wasn't convinced. He was basically indifferent. After the Nile turning to blood, his magicians imitated it. Pharaoh remained proud. After the frogs, his magicians imitated it, and Pharaoh was disturbed, and he lied to Moses and Aaron concerning his intentions in order to get some relief. After the gnats, the magicians couldn't imitate it, and Pharaoh refused to listen to their advice. After the flies, Pharaoh negotiated, but lied again, was deceitful, After the livestock dying, Pharaoh hardened his heart. After the boils, Pharaoh's magicians are incapacitated. Pharaoh still doesn't budge. After the hail, Pharaoh expressed a false repentance. He faked it. After the locusts, now his officials are begging him to give in. But Pharaoh loses his temper and breaks off talks with Moses and Aaron. Chapter 10, verse 11. After the darkness, Pharaoh makes a a temporary concession to let Israel go without their flocks and herds. But he loses his temper again and again. He breaks off talks with Moses and Aaron. And after the death of the firstborn in Egypt's families, including Pharaoh's oldest son, Pharaoh despairs and lets Israel go, but it's short-lived because after Israel left, chapter 14, verse 5, says, quote, The mind of Pharaoh and the servants was changed toward the people, and now Pharaoh set out with a whole army with the intent of slaughtering all of the Hebrews. He goes from being indifferent when the snake uh, incident happens all the way to fully intending to slaughter every single Jew. Ten times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Every person that God will judge in eternity utterly and fully has earned that judgment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We may never accuse God of being unjust. Yahweh is just. Let me give you one more declaration concerning Israel's God. Yahweh is gracious. He's gracious. And we have to look beyond this time and this text to make this point. We can't overlook the the fact that in the context of all of the Pentateuch, all of the first five books of the Old Testament, the original purpose for mankind given by God is to exist in nations which all glorify God on the earth. This is the central directive that we spoke of frequently in the Genesis series. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 declares that mankind has been made in the image of God to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to rule the earth as God's representative over his creation. 
Nations are identified as early as Genesis chapter 2 and at the end of all things in Revelation 21 and 22 in the new heavens and on the new earth and coming into the new Jerusalem are the nations who come to glorify God and to worship God and to bring their offerings to God. Christ reigning on earth. By the way, did you notice how Pharaoh perverted God's original purpose for mankind? Pharaoh claimed to rule the earth on behalf of the false, powerless gods of Egypt. And had he simply submitted to and repented to Yahweh, he would have been included among those who will someday reign on earth on behalf of the true and living God. He could have been a ruler. He could have been, as it were, a pharaoh, but for the right kingdom. But among all these nations that someday, according to Revelation 21 and 22, for all time, all eternity, among these nations who someday will all glorify and worship the true and living God, the Bible names some of them, future nations made up of people who have all submitted, everyone, to salvation from sin offered by the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah names one of those nations. In Isaiah 19, you don't have to turn there, but beginning in verse 16, Isaiah speaks of the beginning of the reign of Christ on earth, and he uses the phrase, in that day, five times. The first time, in that day, Egypt will tremble before the Lord. Second time, in that day, Egyptians will speak Hebrew, and they'll swear allegiance to Yahweh, now reigning on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Third time, in that day, Egypt will worship the one true God, and God will be her protector, Fourth time, in that day, Egypt will be on one end of a highway of peace that goes through Israel and on to Assyria, another nation now blessed of God. Can you imagine trying to get Egypt and Israel and all the other Middle Eastern countries right now? Hey, let's just build a highway of peace from one end to the other. It's not going to happen until Christ comes. And fifth, in that day, Isaiah 19, verse 25, Yahweh will say, Blessed be Egypt, my people. He will adopt them. He will adopt a remnant of that nation. Well, Yahweh alone is God. Yahweh is supreme. Yahweh is patient. Yahweh is almighty. Yahweh is just. And Yahweh is gracious. Now, those qualities are clear. But the Bible is so, so consistent with itself, and God is consistent within himself, within the person of the Trinity. Do we know anybody else who meets all those qualities? Of course we do. We see all of those qualities in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone is God. He identifies himself as I am, Yahweh. Jesus Christ is supreme. Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is patient. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus Christ is almighty. Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus Christ is just. Revelation 19.11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And of course, Jesus Christ is gracious. So gracious. In Mark 2, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. He told the repentant thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. On one occasion, Yahweh turned the Nile into something that looked like blood. On another occasion, Yahweh sent the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, to shed very real blood to pay for your sins and for mine, for all who would repent. And so what we've seen in these plagues is a remarkable story to remind Israel of the might and the nature of her God, to remind us of the might and the nature of our Savior, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, Israel has a mighty God.
we've been grafted in to that tree, so to speak, as Paul says in Romans, we are part of the people of God. And while you do make a distinction between Israel and the church, it's merely a distinction of timing and of dispensation, so to speak. But ultimately, Lord, there will be a day when all the nations, every nation, Israel, Egypt, Assyria, every nation named on this earth will be filled only with the saved, filled only with those who have place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And there will be a day, Lord, that every person will be living on this wonderful new earth in wonderful new resurrected bodies, all proclaiming that we worship the singular true God, God Almighty. We worship you, our almighty God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.